We're in Acts 15, as you know, um, the Jerusalem Council. Um, if this were a regular class, I'd ask someone to summarize Peter's um, little address. It's not a sermon um, and the major point he was making, but since this isn't a class, I won't ask anyone to do that. Amen. <clears throat> but it would be fun to hear. And if this were a class, I would ask you in one sentence to summarize what is the key issue that the Jerusalem Council in A.D. 49 and the fall of A.D. 49 is addressing. That I think you could answer. Grace plus. What is it? Circumstance plus of the Gentiles. Yeah, I mean, you've got you've got a the potential of a separate two separate churches, a Jewish church and a Gentile church, because the Jews who have become Christians, um, Luke refers to them as the party believers who are the party of the Pharisees, early in the chapter. They're individuals who have believed that Christ, uh, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. But they're still processing, what do I do with all of my traditions? And so they're insisting that to be saved, you not only put your faith in Jesus Christ, but you be circumcised. And then they add very unclearly what they meant by all that, but keep the law of Moses. And so that's why Peter stands up and summarizes what happened to him in Acts 10, subsequent to that his ministry to Cornelius, and where Cornelius and his family, Gentiles, accepted Christ. Were they circumcised? No. Were they required to observe or follow anything in the Jewish? No. The, and so he's saying, as God blessed us, Pentecost, all the blessings of the Holy Spirit, so he blessed them as well. And so that sets us up for verse 12, where James uh, will begin to speak in a minute. Uh, as we'll, we'll get into this in just a second. Any questions, everybody with me? Yes. This is, you're so spread out. I mean, it's like I have a class that's really close and with me, and then I have another class that I'm never sure you're with me because I like body language to watch that and then facial expressions, and you're so far away I can't even see you. Uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit. but A couple amens back there would probably suffice. <laughs> <laughs> no. All right, well, why don't we pick up then in verse 12. Um, that was a very brief summary. I hope it was adequate if you hadn't been here last week. <clears throat> and all the assembly fell silent, uh, meaning those who were at the council in Jerusalem after Peter had finished speaking. So that's, um, that's an important response. There's not pushback. There's not dissent. They fell silent. This it was saved for you, John, purposely. Actually, nobody, I didn't, nobody knew that, but they had a sense you might be coming, so they decided to. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. That little phrase, among the Gentiles, is really important. But let's think about, let's think about what Luke is saying there as he's summarizing what happened after Peter's address was finished. Signs and wonders. That little phrase we've talked a lot about in our, in our discussions in the book of Acts, actually in the, in the Gospel of Luke as well. That is a phrase that was used consistently of messianic miracles. Healings and uh, the sight, uh, the, the blind getting sight, the deaf uh, being able to hear, etc., etc., 
And here, just summarizing this, the same thing that you saw happen to us, Jews, Jerusalem, Judea, etc., is happening among the Gentiles. Point, there's spiritual equality. The same thing that happened to the Jews is happening to the Gentiles. And so this isn't just a passing statement that Luke is saying, well, I think I'll just include. This is very important because it's buttressing and substantiating what Peter had said in his little bit of a longer address. Are you with me on that? I mean, I just want you to make sure why, understand why Luke's including this. This isn't just an afterthought. It's very central to what's going on here in Jerusalem. So, verse 13 now. After they had finished speaking, they would be Paul and Barnabas. James replied. Now, who, who is this? This is James, the brother of Jesus, not James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. James, this brother of John, had been uh, martyred, had been killed by Herod earlier, Herod Agrippa earlier. So, uh, anyway, just to make sure you know who James is. The other thing I want you to notice, this is, this is subtle, but it's an important observation to make. James is now the head of the Jerusalem church. I mean, yeah, and, you know, I don't want you to think of, you know, had an election. It's not, but he has emerged as head of the church because Peter's ministry is far out in terms of Judea, Samaria, and so on. And this chapter, the one we're in right now, chapter 15, Peter will now disappear from the scene. I maybe shouldn't say disappear. That's not the right way to say that. There will no longer be a focus on Peter. Peter's name will not be mentioned after chapter 15. And so you have two things going on here that are really important for us to observe. James is the head of the Jerusalem church. He is the one who issues this edict that is now sent as a letter throughout the churches of the Eastern Mediterranean world. Not Peter, James. And the second thing is Peter pretty much is no longer on center stage. So a natural question emerges from chapter 16 on through the end, chapter 28, who is on center stage? Paul. Paul is, because now, after, after the Jerusalem Council, the focus will be on Paul's remaining two missionary journeys, and then his arrest in Jerusalem, and then taken to Caesarea, put in prison there for two years, and so on, and then as he goes to Rome. And so, I mean, that, that, that we'll talk about that as we move into those next chapters. But... Let me make one more point so that you see the unity of the book of Acts. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 8, being worked out. Jesus said, start in Jerusalem, go to Judea, then to Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. So we've had all of the examples of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Now the focus is the uttermost parts of the earth, which in terms of of the, the focus of Acts is the Mediterranean world of the Roman Empire. You and I are still in phase four of Jesus' directive in 2018. We're still, we're still completing that, the uttermost parts of the earth. All right? So is everybody with me? Now, what James does here is important because he's confirming what Peter said, and he's proposing a compromise. So let's take a look at what he says. James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon... Now, that's really, it's, it's kind of unusual, but he uses his Hebrew name. He doesn't call him Simon. He doesn't call him Peter. He says Simeon, which is his Hebrew name, Simon, Hebrew Simeon. 
has related how God had visited the Gentiles. Now, you, you really ought to circle that word visited only because it is of strategic importance. That is a messianic word. It is used in the Old Testament numerous times in the prophets, major, particularly Isaiah and some of the minor prophets, of the messianic visitation when Messiah comes. So it's, he's using that word very strategically. Again, he's trying to alert them to all these key terms. As Messiah came to us, now Messiah is visiting the Gentiles through you know Peter and and, and Philip and, and, and Paul and so on, all the people we've seen so far in the book of Acts, to take from them a people for his name. That, again, is the same thing that's used in the Old Testament of God choosing Israel, a people for his name. So now, now you follow me here. You, you should remember all this. Here is the Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled. In Genesis 12, 3, God said to Abraham, you know, your uh, seed is going to be as numerous as the stars of the sky, um, the land I'm giving you, and in you all the nations will be blessed. And the Apostle Paul picks up on that, and here James is too, this is the blessing of salvation. And so, I mean, it's just, it's amazing how James is trying to take all these key phrases and words out of the Old Testament, and applying them, now God is visiting the Gentiles with the gift of salvation. Just as he chose a people for his name, the Abrahamic covenant, an unconditional unilateral covenant, now he's choosing a people to participate in the new covenant. And of course that uh, will be the church and, and so on. But now, when, when you're talking about Gentiles, you're talking about the entire, uh, the entire rest of the world outside of the Jews, right? It's not just all non-Jews. Yeah, it's not referring to a geographical place per se. It's just it's an ethnic reference. Right. Non-Jews. Right. The the Hebrew is goyim. In in in, in Greek, it's the ethne. We get a word ethnic right. from that. So, I mean, he's just, he's making, it's a very common thing to do in the New Testament, but he's making that very strategic point that God is now bringing the blessing of salvation, which started with the Jews. Salvation comes by the Jews, Jesus said, to, uh, to the Gentiles, to all the non-Jews. It's now available to everybody. Also, when it says to take from them a people, for his name, mm. indicating that not everybody is going to it's going to be the ones who get the message. That's why the message and respond is sent in, respond in faith, and, and, and they, they accept the message and, and that's accept right. Christ. That, that's that's the selection process. That's right. That's good. That's basing it very wisely. Good. All right, you you still with me? Yep. Yes. Then verse fifteen, as so often. You see the New Testament, both preachers and writers do, they validate this with a quote from the Old Testament. And so, I mean, you see, again, they do this all the time, and you know, Paul does this all the time, Peter does this, here James is doing it. Let's connect it with the Old Testament. You should know this. This isn't new truth. The Old Testament prophets said this was going to happen. And so, 
as with this, the words of the prophets agree. And this, that demonstrative pronoun, is referring to what he just said in verse 14. That God is visiting the Gentiles, calling out from among them a people for his name. And the prophets agreed with this. They said this. And so then he quotes Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Man, I'm telling you, if I were James and I were choosing something to quote for, I wouldn't choose Amos. You know, I mean, there's so many other places he could choose. But, I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's under the inspiration of the Spirit, but he chooses this. And just look, and I can see why he did it, though. Amos writes, after this, I, this is Yahweh speaking to the people of Israel. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Now, what what is this referring to? Amos is issuing a prophecy of what will happen to the Jews when in disobedience to God, and because of their idolatry, are sent into exile. Did that happen to them? Mm -hmm. Yes. Did God bring them back? Yes. Yes. But he is saying, and and this this, just look at the language, I will rebuild the tent of David. Now, you you know who David is. That is really a reference to the Davidic covenant. I will rebuild the tent of David. I, I will restore the covenantal promises I made to David, an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne, an eternal dynasty. Who fulfills that? Jesus, Jesus does. Jesus is the only one that can fulfill that because in, De- in 2 Samuel seven sixteen is the Davidic promise summarized. An eternal throne, an eternal dynasty, eternal kingdom. Who's the only one that can fulfill that? Jesus. There's no other king that followed David that fulfilled that. So they go into exile. And God promises, I'm going to restore and rebuild this. What? This covenant kingdom. And when I do that, it's not only going to include the Jews, it's going to include the Gentiles. Does Messiah do that? Yes. So you see, Amos, it's, it's, it's a great, when you think about it and understand what Amos is saying, Amos is, Amos is, a, is an 8th century B.C. prophet. So that's 8th century B.C. He's prophesying something that's going to happen over 700 years later in terms of the Messiah coming, uh, dying for the human race, and his apostles then declaring the gospel not only to the Jews but to the Gentiles. Amos is saying this is going to happen. And so what James is saying is what Amos prophesied 750 years ago is now being fulfilled. So the prophets agree with what Peter just said. And see, this is really important for these Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Many of them had been Pharisees who had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They say they should be, I don't know if they would be, but they should be shaking their heads. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's right. That's what Amos was talking about. So to validate that the gospel is now going to the Gentiles, 
And in the words of Paul in Romans 9, they're now going to be grafted into the covenant. The Gentiles are now going to experience some of the blessings that God promised to the Jews. And in the context of where we are now in terms of God's plan, this is the new covenant blessing. So it's an extraordinary... Don't, don't admit, I know this is maybe hard for some of you guys to take all this apart and put it back together again, but James is validating from the Old Testament 750 years earlier what Peter just said. When Peter sat down, James says, this, this is what Amos was talking about. Got it, you guys? That's what I say. James doesn't say that. But I mean, it's like, you got it? You see? You shouldn't be surprised by this. Okay, there were some questions or some... The remnant of mankind, that's Israel. I, I think so. I think so. Because then it goes on references. And then the Gentiles, I think so. So it's a remnant that, that, that made it out of Egypt. And, 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 and they're dispersed then. And he's, yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, what's the basis for <coughs> saying that even all the Gentiles will be included? I, I mean... Uh, okay, the basis... I, um, I'm it's, not sure. I understand your words, but I'm not sure. Go ahead. Well, the basis, the basis is the Abrahamic covenant promise: in yeah. you, all the nations will be blessed. Genesis twelve three. But another way to answer your question, the basis of it is simply the grace of God. God chooses in His grace uh, to bless the Gentiles with the same salvation that was offered to the Jews. Is that is that it's your question or? Well, I guess it, it, a little farther than that, that even all the Gentiles who, but, but then this is going to be done by Jesus. How does that, where does it say that, you know, or, or how is this? Well, it, 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 part of that is, is what is, is Amos is saying in, as a prophecy, I will rebuild the tent of David. Okay, so that's in, in the, verse that's 16. The to Jesus. Well, yeah, I mean, there's the Davidic covenant, and only Jesus can fulfill that. Yeah, all right. No other king of Israel, and, you know, from when David, when David died and his son Solomon and all the things that followed, no king fulfilled that covenant. So how is Jesus introduced in the early uh, pages of the New Testament as the son of David, the Davidic king? So does that... Uh, does that yeah, answer your question? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's, I if, if you're with me, I mean, this is, if you're with me, you're seeing something here that, again, the Jewish leaders should have figured this out. I mean, this isn't new truth that the gospel and, and that the Gentiles are going to be blessed. This isn't new truth. This is all through the covenantal language of the Old Testament. But it's like, you know, they're still they're still shocked by it. And they, they, you know, they're, they're trying to, they're trying to say, well, we sort of like Gentiles hearing the message of Jesus because we've accepted him too, but we want him to be like us. You know, we want him to be like us because we're the people inside track. We have fifteen hundred years behind us, and they should be like us. So, you know, let's require them to be circumcised. Amen. Yes. Let's require that they keep a lot of the feast days. Amen. Yes. And even as like memorials, let's have them do some of the uh, the sacrifices, like they do Lord's tables of memorial for Jesus. Let's just so you know they become like us. And Peter said, "No, because all of those distinctives have been fulfilled in Christ. They're not necessary anymore. 
So don't make the Gentiles become Jews. All of those distinctive barriers are gone. Where does the lack of teaching of the coming Messiah in Jewish synagogues prior to this time exist? Did it ever exist? Oh, heaven just. Oh, yes. And the so, first century messianic expectation was very high. Very high. Immediately. But then yeah. we're talking over a period of time, did that message get eroded? Like he's never going to show up? He's never. We're just going to go through the statements, but we're not really presenting it as a future. Well, in the, you know, from this time till today, it's almost 2,000 years. Uh, in that 2,000-year period, with the exception of about 10%, I'm thinking of 2018, in the Orthodox Jewish um, dimension of Judaism, everybody else is probably, Reformed Jews, conservative Jews, probably saying, we don't believe that anymore. We're not looking for Messiah. We're not, I mean, the, um, I think I told you about this a couple of weeks ago in New York Times book review. They had a three-page summary of a series of books that have written by major rabbis in, the, in this last year, representing where Reform Judaism is, conservative Judaism, and every, one of, every single one of them said, we're no longer looking for a personal Messiah. It's just amazing. That's, it's just amazing. They're turning their back on one of the central teachings of, the, of Torah, and of the entire Old Testament set of prophecies, expect a personal Messiah. Hence the name Israel, he who contends with God. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. It's a classic illustration of the name. You know, I mean, it's just, in that sense, it's a tragedy. Now, there's still, there, uh, I, I do not remember where I read this, but um, proportionately speaking, there are more Jews coming to faith in Christ now than there have been in the last 2,000 years, proportionally speaking. And so that is the same, it's, it's the same thing is happening, but on the other hand, it's exciting to see that. Um, it really is. Is that coming from the Orthodox side? Yeah. It's, it's oh, but that's a good, I'm not sure I can give you a breakdown there. It, uh, a lot of them are Orthodox. But, uh, I mean, the two guys I knew when I was in the graduate school that were Jewish guys, they both came out of Reform synagogues. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure. I can't break it down. I don't know that breakdown. All right. Is everybody with me here on what, really what James is doing? But I wanted to make sure you understood, first of all, number one, all these key phrases that James is using. And secondly, then, quoting from... Uh, Amos, to show that what is happening now, meaning for them right now, should not be, should not surprise you. Everything in the Old Testament, and look at Amos 9, chosen. Okay? Verse uh, 19. Therefore, therefore, my judgment, now this is James, the head of the Jerusalem church speaking, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God should not trouble, cause extra difficulty, cause consternation to the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them, and that's what he'll do, he'll send a letter, to abstain from the things polluted by idols, 
from sexual immorality and from what was strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city and those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, let's start with verse 21 and work our way backward. So James is proposing something. For the Gentiles who come to faith in Christ, for the Gentiles who come to faith in Christ in the Mediterranean world, which is their world at this time, will they be in contact with Jews? Yes. James says, because this is due to the diaspora, the spreading of the Jews, from generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. Now what is he saying there? The law is read and proclaimed in the synagogues throughout the Mediterranean world. For every Sabbath they read from the laws of Moses in the synagogues. So, for Gentiles who come to faith in Christ, for the sake of those Jews who have not yet accepted Jesus as a Messiah. You still with me? This is how he's framing it. I'm asking them to make sure they do not engage in four practices that are very common to the Greco-Roman world. Because those practices will be misunderstood by the Jews and will create a division. We want to reach the Jews for Christ. But if they see Gentiles, and these are four Gentile practices out of the Greco-Roman world, to abstain from things polluted by idols, what might that be? Meat. Because as you know, we've talked about it's very much in, in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. When the Corinthians say to Paul, okay, we've come to Christ. We used to go to the idol temples. And in the idol temples, they sacrificed the meat to the idols, you know, Zeus and Aphrodite and all those guys. And then the rest of the meat, they sit around and eat a meal. Paul, can we go into that temple and take my wife to dinner there? Because it was a social gathering place. What's Paul's answer? Yes. But for the sake of weaker brothers, consider not doing that. That's what James is saying here. If Jews see these Gentile Christians going into these, these idol temples where the meat's polluted, quote-unquote, by idols, What's going to offend them? They'll never listen to you. They'll never hear your testimony. You follow me? Secondly, from sexual immorality. Now that, again, that very much has the, it can mean just sexual immorality because the, the Greek word there's porneia. But it's in this context of what he's saying in the idol worship temples. So they see you go into these idol temples to have a meal with your wife, which is also where a lot of sexual immorality goes. What are they assuming? That's what these Gentiles are doing. Their Christian freedom, quote-unquote, means they can go in and participate in all the sexual immorality. They may be, probably they're not, hopefully, and they say you're going to offend them. You'll never have an opportunity to to be a testimony to them. Or, or eat things, because in the Greco-Roman world, when they offered those animals to the idols, they strangled them. 
And as you probably know, Leviticus is filled with language, don't strangle an animal. You neatly cut it. And that's what the rabbis do today, or they ensure, supposed to ensure in kosher food, how the animal is killed. And so, and then blood, as you know, blood is, is to eat or drink blood is terribly offensive to a Jew. Leviticus 17. So do you understand what James is saying here? We're asking the Greco-Roman Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ to be sensitive to their Jewish brothers, but also to other Jews. Because Jews are everywhere in the Greco-Roman world because of the diaspora. So what is James saying? There is absolutely no compromise on justification by faith plus nothing. But there's also love and compassion and grace in how you deal with someone ethnically different than you. So Gentiles were asking you to be sensitive, you Gentile Christians, to be sensitive to your Jewish brothers and your and your, your Jews that you may want to minister to and, and share Christ with, because they're going to misunderstand if you go into those idol temples to have a meal with your wife, where there's a lot of sexual immorality, they're going to misunderstand that. So maybe the best thing for you to do is don't extra. That's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. You have liberty, but for the sake of others, you may have to give up some of those rights. And that's what James is saying. So it's a victory of the truth of the gospel, but it's also a victory of love and grace in dealing with people different than you. Be sensitive. Be sensitive to them. All right, does that make sense? Yes. Very strong verbal yes. That's good. <laughs> I mean, are you serious? Is everybody with me? I want to make sure that you understand what James is doing here. It's a tremendous compromise. He is not compromising the gospel at all. It's by grace through faith plus nothing. He doesn't. He does not dissent on that at all. But he's asking the Gentiles to be sensitive about how they're going to exercise some of their liberty. It's going to be hard for a Jewish person to watch you eat meat that's strangled or eat meat from an animal that was strangled. It's a very sensitive issue to Jews. So, so do we know if his argument here prevailed? I think, uh, well... In other words, was he effective in persuading the, the Jewish elders to back down from... Yes, the, yes, yes. We're going to read a little bit about that. Absolutely, yes. These, the people in Jerusalem, these leaders at the council, they agree with this. There's unity as a result of this. And then because the letter, which we'll read about in the next paragraph, even Luke even quotes the whole letter that goes out in verse 22 and following, uh, this has an enormous impact in the Eastern Mediterranean world. It really does in the short run. I mean, and, you know, some of this, that is the church experience, becomes a huge issue, not specific these issues, but w- what does Christian liberty look like? What does Christian freedom look like? in the Greco-Roman world. And that becomes a, that becomes an issue later on in history. It's an issue today. 
I mean, it really is. It's an issue today. What does Christian liberty mean in, in 2018? And what does me being willing to give up some of my liberty for the sake of others mean in 2018? It means, in terms of context and content, something different than it did in, in AD 30, AD 49, excuse me, it was when the Jerusalem councils occurred. Did that answer your question? I mean, it, it, there's, an, there's amazing unanimity reached here on what Peter then buttressed by what James says as head of the Jerusalem church. Um, and it's, it's going to endure now for, for quite a while until you get a little bit later on into the history of the church. Then it's, uh, because as you know, later in the church, by the 300s, uh, the, um, the, the, the Christians will start to turn on the Jews and start to kill them. What's the application for casinos and bars? Uh, I mean, they're all over our city, and you just drive across the river, and you're in a casino, or you, maybe Council Bluffs uh, or Carter. Uh, how does that, what's the practical application of that as um, Christians um, that we might be keep our witness, let's say, by where we go, that type of thing. I need to break a little early here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're baiting me to say something absolute here, and I'm going to be no, careful. I'm no, I'm just asking I you. <laughs> let's, let's, put it, let's put it this way. Let, let's use um, this example uh, do I have the freedom to take Peggy over to one of the casinos for a meal? Yes. Which, you know, I, I've never been to one, actually. But, uh, but I hear from what's other that they have sumptuous meals at a, a pretty low price. Of course, the idea there is to get you to come in and not only enjoy the food, but to maybe do some of the slots or gambling or whatever. I mean, the answer to that in the context of what Paul says in the first Corinthians is yes. You do have the freedom. You're not going over to do anything wrong. You're not, you're not engaging in any evil. You're enjoying a meal. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, Paul says, as he quotes from the Old Testament. <clears throat> but that's not your only consideration. Because I remember when I was president, I had a number of uh, opportunities to go over there for certain meetings and things like that, and I always tried to find a way to get out of it. <laughs> Mainly because it just per chance, if one of my students or donors would see me going into that, it's not that that is evil in and of itself, but they may misunderstand perhaps what I'm doing or mis misread, you know, what, what is Ekman doing there? I mean, and it's going to cause a whole bunch of questions. So Paul just says, you know, in those kinds of situations, it's probably wise for you to give up those liberties that you have for the sake of others. Because it'll be so easily misunderstood. And secondly, he says, it can cause others to stumble. Suppose, I can't quite imagine any situation specific, but suppose I knew someone who had been a habitual gambler, and they've come out of that, they've been pretty much gotten victory over it, and for some reason, they're there and they see me go into a casino. It's the same context that Paul says of you going into an idol temple to have a meal with your wife. Somebody who just came out of idolatry and they see you doing, they're going to say, well, if Paul can do that, I can do it. And then their whole, they get back, sucked back into their old life. So Paul just says, you know, for sake of others. I can, I can abide to anything that's addictive. That's correct. 
That's it, it, it can, and that's right. That's why it's bars on the different. Well, that's what I mean. It's all of, all of the different things that we may or may not choose to do in 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 cultural engagement in our in our world in 2018 can easily be misunderstood <laughs> by someone. So yeah, it's wisdom. What's what is the wise thing for me to do in a situation like this? Um, and Paul always says, I don't, I'm, I'm paraphrasing his point, I don't pound the table demanding my rights. I'm willing to give up my rights for the sake of others. In another part of chapter 9, he says, to the Jew, I'm a Jew. To the Gentile, I'm a Greek, I'm a Greek. To, to, to everyone, I become all things to all people, that I might win some. Whatever I need to do. Not about me. And it's, just, it's, it's a way in which we're always... That's really hard to do. It really is. It's not that that's evil necessarily. I mean, it can be, but it's not. It's, it's how people are going to misunderstand, and even in your own life. Is it wise for me to do this? Just in what it could expose me to. I mean, these are the things we have to just think through and just process. And you see, the e- this, <laughs> when you're working with young adults like I did a good part of my life, all they want is just tell me the right answer. <laughs> Just tell me the right thing to do. And I, and I always say to them, now look, you're young adults, and in 10 years, are you going to call me up and say, what should I do in this situation? Should I read this book? Should I see this movie? Should I play this game? I'm not going to do that. You've got to work through your own strategy for holiness. And that, I mean, that's part of the freedom we have in Christ. That we have that we have that obligation, which is freeing, really, to develop your own strategy for holiness. So I may choose not to do things, certain things that Fred chooses to do and enjoys him. It doesn't bother him. And I just use that as an example. But so I mean, it's that kind of so. There's it's an acceptance. That's okay. That's Fred chooses, and it's fine. It, it's not a problem for him. But I'm just choosing not to do that. Does that make me better than him? Or I'm more spiritually mature than he is. If that's the if that's the conclusion you read, you have just slipped into legalism. Because I don't do this. I'm more spiritually mature than Fred. Look what he's still doing. Not me. You know, that's just that whole but we we delight in that. And we frame Christianity as a set of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Wisdom says, spiritual maturity says, I choose to do all things to the glory of God. Some things I'll choose not to do. Some things I'll choose to do. But I do all to the glory of God. And what I choose, and we're we're talking here, we're not talking about choices of sin. You never have the freedom to sin. You know what I mean? I, I hope you follow that. We're choosing... Our discussion here and what even James is saying, we were talking about things in the non-moral areas of life, things that are not clearly, clearly articulated in God's Word. And you and I live in a world where there's nothing in the, there's nothing in the Bible about Facebook or Twitter or online. I mean, there, none of that's in the Bible. So... A very important wisdom teaching in the scriptures, Old and New Testament, is self-control. Yeah. Yeah. That's a principle. That's 
So self-control immediately applies to all those things. So is it wrong to be on Facebook? No, that's not an evil. But can Facebook, or, you know, maybe that's not the best example, but, you know, video games and all the kinds of things you can do with your phones, that stuff can become so consuming and even eventually addictive. So it's not evil, but self-control means that's not going to control me. I'm going to control it. That's a tool for me. It's not controlling me. And they're the kind of things where there are biblical principles that we're always looking for in the, in, in the culture <laughs> in which we live. Wow, we got way off track here, but Glenn, I think you um, had to hand off. You referred us to a book, The Measure of a Man from Genesis. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, we're going through that on our Wednesday night study. Wonderful book. Great. Timothy 3 piece where it just steps, that applies directly to Excellent. Conduct. It does. Excellent. That's excellent. It's a great book. It really is. I think probably every man in this room can identify with this challenge because yeah. not so much from making decisions about what you can and can't do, but I know when I was young in my faith, mm. there were times that my faith really stumbled because of what I saw uh, an older, more mature, and a longer Christian had done, and it caused real challenges for me personally. I mean, we can look at it in two ways. Absolutely. What you can choose to do or how you respond to what you see in someone else's life. That's really, uh, that's really an insightful comment, Jim. Um, those of us who walked with the Lord a little longer than others, and much of my life was working with young men, um, and the, 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 the reality always was there are a lot of people watching what you do. And so it's just a matter of, of being wise. I mean, when I was raising my kids, I always, that was always a penetrating thing. My wife always was helping me to remember that. <laughs> Jim, whatever you do, remember, four eyes are watching you. Two belong to Joanna, two belong to Jonathan. And, and they see you living and see you making decisions. That's going to impact their understanding of Jesus and whether they want to follow him too. So, I mean, that's, uh, that's one of the reasons why the Bible says so clearly, it's in the Old and the New Testament, the older should mentor the young, or the, and the young should be willing to be mentored. That's hard in our, that's hard in our culture today. You have to be very, um, very intentional about that in a local church or in, in situations, uh, whatever they might be, to, to make sure that's happening. Because the... Uh, the contrary of that is the young watch the old, older, not being consistent in living what they teach. That's a devastating impact. Whereas if you're mentoring and you're with them, they see, you know, look, the Christian life is growing. It's, it's progressive. And I still struggle. An older man saying, I still struggle with certain things. And I want you to be aware of that. Just because I'm older doesn't, I mean, these are the kinds of things that then neutralize what sometimes the very young see, or even the very young in Christ see, in perceived inconsistencies or even perceived hypocrisies. When you understand sanctification, then you understand everybody's in process. Nobody's made it yet. We're all in the same boat. And that I've walked with a little longer than you means I can help you, but don't, don't, don't follow me and say, Exactly he what he does, I want because I'm stumbling too. Because we're all in this together. 
Swindoll, I, I think I mentioned Swindoll. I, I've read a lot of Swindoll stuff, but I still his best book is The Grace Awakening. It's one of the best. It's simple, but it's profound in its simplicity. Little dissertation on grace. What does grace mean to us? Grace is all over the Bible. It's so important to us. We we are saved by grace. We are sustained by grace. We live by grace. So what does that mean? And the, the argument he makes in the book is that great to understand grace is liberating. It keeps you from the legalistic hang-ups, which is, I think, part of freeing being free in Christ. What was the name again? The, the Grace Awakening. G-R-A-C-E. The Grace Awakening. It's it's an older book. It's one of his earlier books, but it's still... Um, where, where, did, where, did, where did um Paul make the comments about um, um, doing stuff, giving up stuff for... The longest, uh, it's a couple of places. It's in Romans 14, but the longest uh, material where he deals with it is 8, eight 9, and 10 of 1 Corinthians. It's his longest dissertation and discussion about, about Christian liberty. And he says in there twice, um, I have freedom to do, speaking in non-morals of life, I have freedom, but I will not be mastered by anything. That's, that's, a, that's a great dictum, a great principle. I have freedom, but I will not be mastered by anything. I serve Christ. He's my master, but I will not be mastered. And that can be alcohol, food, uh, electronic, digital gadgets, television, anything. I will not be mastered by anything. And as one of you said, that gets back to that fruit of the Spirit, self-control. I think one of the greatest marks, well, maybe I shouldn't say it that way, one of the marks of spiritual maturity is self-control. Mm-hmm. I, I, really, I really mean that. That's, that's, that, is a, that, is a, that is a mark of growth. It's just being able to understand that I need to control these things because if I don't, they will control me. Could I ask one more question? Yeah. We're not simply just treading water till we get to heaven, die and get to heaven. We're trying to live for Christ in love so that we will show that love to others that they would come to know him and that they would understand that Christianity is not just a set of rules, but it's a life worth living because it's dependent upon Christ's principles and not our own man-made principles. Maybe people will accept that more than trying to actually preach them or talk them into heaven. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, this isn't original with me, but I I like this as a thought. Christianity is not a set of rules. Christianity is a relationship. 
And God's our Heavenly Father, and He desires a relationship with us. And just like your relationship with your kids mm-hmm. is defined by lots of different things, but the standards you set for your home are, are not restricted to your kids. They're, prote- they're protective, they're reasonable, they're wise. The kids don't always see it that way. But as you grow, as you as your kids grow chronologically, what happens to those rules? They get fewer and fewer. You give them more and more freedom, because parenting is moving your kids from dependence on you to dependence on Christ. That's parenting from the Christian perspective. But I, you know, I didn't want my kid. I wanted my kids to say seven. I didn't want them to grow up. I liked them when they were seven. They were fun. You know, they were through all the crazy stuff, and they weren't yet into the disease of adolescence. I just, that was so, that was the lovely time. But they kept growing up. And then, you know, you, you'd have, the, the, every kid is so unique, and they're just so different. And the, the, the strategies and the ways you do things with Jonathan, our oldest, did not work with Joanna at all. And everybody, you always experience the same thing. And so you got a whole, whole new set of strategies. And I'd say to Joanna, okay, Joanna, 11 o'clock tonight. How about 11.30, Dad? No. <laughs> 11.15? No. Because Joanna always pushed the envelope. Are the boundaries still the boundaries, Dad? Yes, they are. And I will trust you until you give me a reason not to trust you. And then the boundaries will go back on again. That's what, and so the Lord is saying that to us. My parameters are not because I'm a mean spirit. Those parameters are for your good. They're protective. Trust me with these. And that's what's hard. But Christianity, this is the thing. Every every single religion and worldview is about rules. You want to have a relationship with Allah? There is no such thing. But you want to spend eternity with Allah? There is no such thing. But you want to be free from the judgment? Do the five pillars. Follow them meticulously and rigidly. And maybe when you die and stand before Allah, maybe he'll be gracious enough to accept it. You never know. Do you want to follow a God like that? When Christianity is saying, God has dealt with every problem you have, every sin you've ever committed. His son paid the price. He invites you to have an eternal relationship with him based on faith and trust in him, that he completed, did everything for you. Which God do you want to follow? Buddhism. You master yourself. You find enlightenment by turning inward and mastering yourself. Then maybe you can break the cycle of reincarnation and become united with the great one of the universe and you cease to disappear. You cease to exist. I mean, can you, why, why would you do that? That my goal is to cease to exist, to be merged with the great one of the universe. I mean, it just, whereas Christianity is saying, God has done everything for you. He's dealt with your sin. He's paid the price. He wants an eternal relationship with you. And what you have to do is trust that what he's done is for you. Appropriate all the things his son has done for you by faith. His death, burial, and resurrection. I mean, it's just... Every world religion is based on you must do this, you must do this, you must, and maybe, maybe you've done enough. Christianity says yeah, it's not about you doing anything. Christ has done everything. God is saying to you, put your faith in me that I accomplished everything through my son 
in his death, burial, and resurrection. Which, to me, that's the appeal of Christianity. It's hard. It's, it's amazing how hard it is for people. You mean I don't have to do anything? No, that's right, you don't. All right, now, oh my goodness. Um, verse 22. Now, verse 22 through really the end of the paragraph through verse 35, the largest part of that is the letter that James sends out. But let's look at the conclusion in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. Now, that gives us the sense that everybody agrees with us. And to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So, let's do this, they said. We agree with what Peter said and James's affirmation compromise. It seemed good. It, that word seem good means it's been debated, it's been discussed, it's been reasonably laid out for us. We accept this. Now listen, we have got to get the word out. And we've got to start with Antioch. Why? Because that's where the dispute started. So they're going to send among people in the Jerusalem church to go up with Paul and Barnabas. So who'd they choose? Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. Judas, called Barsabbas, we don't know anything really about him. But Silas, we do know a lot about him. Why do we know about him? He will travel with Paul. In the second missionary journey, the third missionary journey, he will be Paul's sidekick. <clears throat> and so you see, okay, what are they doing? They're choosing two key leaders of the Jerusalem church to go up to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas to take this letter. Not just Paul and Barnabas, it's two key leaders of the Jerusalem church to take James's letter. And then Luke quotes from the letter in verse 23 through 29, he quotes the letter. I'm not sure I'm going to read all this, but it just it summarizes how this issue came up. And then in verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than those requirements. And he, they summarize what James had said. Stained sacrifice from others from blood, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's the letter. No compromise in the gospel. But we're asking you Gentiles in the Greco-Roman world, be sensitive to some of the things you do as Gentiles and how the Jews will understand some of this. Be willing to give it up. And so that's it. The Jerusalem Council's decree is the letter of James, which we've re uh, Luke has summarized for us in verse 23 and following. So they were sent off, and they went down to Antioch. Having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Isn't that terrific? In the Antiochian church, Gentiles, they accept it. We're willing to do this. You're not making us be circumcised. You're not making us follow the law of Moses. You're saying justification is by grace through faith plus nothing else. Great but we're willing to do these things that you're saying. So, Jim? Yeah. So the, the churches in these other cities had been feeling some kind of pressure or guilt or something to, that they should be circumcised. 
Well, certainly in Antioch. And, and when we're going to read, uh, we, don't, uh, we don't go into this here, of course, in Acts, but when you read the book of Galatians, uh, in the Galatian churches that Paul had planted in his first missionary journey, Jewish guys were going around following him and saying exactly what was being said in Antioch. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow the law of Moses if you want to be a Christian. And that's and Paul fires off the letter of Galatians. So yes, that pressure is being felt all over the Eastern Mediterranean world for these new uh, Greco-Roman Gentile people who come to faith in Christ. And uh, Paul, I mean, Paul, when you read Galatians, Paul is really upset by this. And he says, what they're preaching is another gospel. And the Greek word is heteron, a gospel of a totally different kind. Bears no resemblance to what I'm preaching. And, and so that's when he launches into that magnificent discussion in chapter 3 and 4, that justification is by faith plus nothing else. Not the law, not circumcision. And in that, and he says it in Rome, just imagine, this is what he says, circumcision means nothing. I mean, just to, you can only say that after the cross. Because, you know, Christ fulfilled all. But, I mean, that's just an extraordinary statement for a Pharisee to say, because Paul had been a Pharisee. I mean, but it's just, that's the implication of the gospel now. All of those distinctives between Jew and Gentile in terms of, 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 of what God's doing are, are now, are, are over. They've been fulfilled in Christ. And the church, this new institution, Jew and Gentile are equal. Now, as he says in Romans, that doesn't mean God isn't concerned about the Jews. He still has a plan for them and so on. But that will all be wrapped around the return of his son. The, the question about circumcision doesn't really get settled here by this edict, does it? Because there, there were, they said two things. Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Well, this talks about the law of Moses and how they can gently handle it and everything like that. But... Um, Peter makes a statement here, why do you test by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither of our ancestors, you know, of our ancestors been able to bear? Well, they bore circumcision, right? But, so I don't know if, if Peter covers that, covers that there, or uh, see what I'm saying here. Um the, we believe it through it's through grace in our Lord Jesus, and, and right. but then James doesn't address okay. circumcision uh, uh, at all. Right? John, yes, but John, go back to, to go back to the whole context as Peter is developing this. What is the yoke that the Pharisaic leaders had placed on the Jews? You earn and merit your salvation by doing these things. Circumcision, keeping the law, etc. And that's you understand what I mean? That's Pharisaic legalism. By doing, you merit God's favor. And Peter says, Out we couldn't keep that, and our ancestors couldn't keep that. Why are you wanting to put that yoke on the Gentiles? And see what he's saying is you're turning salvation by grace into salvation by grace plus works. I mean, you follow me? That's, that's what Peter's really saying there. And so even the idea of, if you're looking at circumcision as a work that you must do to merit God's, you have just crossed from grace into legalism. 
And that's why Jesus in Matthew 8 says, Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, burdened down. I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light, Jesus says. Because Jesus is saying, I'm offering you the new covenant rest. I'm not offering you fire-sick legalism. I want to free you from that. John does raise an interesting question, though. In the letter and the discussion follows, circumcision is not addressed specifically, and that was one of the big decisive and divisive issues. Well, you wonder, why, you wonder why he doesn't say... Well, he, he does. Actually, he does in verse 28. Well, yeah, I mean, Indirectly. But, but, the, well, but it's, it's also interesting, it's going to get a little confusing as we move into chapter, uh, a later chapter. Paul will circumcise Timothy. Why does he do that? Because, so it is not an offense to the Jews. I don't want them to bring that up. I want to share Christ with them. Because if I don't do that, they're going to say, well, this guy isn't circumcised. He's a Greek. He's from Lystra. He's a Gentile. And you're bringing him in to us? He wants to neutralize that. Don't make this an issue. So I'll circumcise. What does Paul say? To the Jew, I'm a Jew. And to earn the opportunity, I maybe shouldn't say earn, but to exercise the opportunity to preach the gospel to them, I'm going to neutralize their concerns. So if they bring up Timothy's a Gentile is not circumcised, you bring him in, okay, I'll circumcise him. I just think it's interesting that, that much of the discussion was around circumcision, and it's not explicitly referenced in the compromise that James puts out. That, that's true. It, it is not explicitly mentioned. Um, when we get to heaven, well, when I ask him, why didn't you specifically mention that? I, I, but he gives us the liberty to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you really want to. Well, it's, it's like, that's, and that, in, in, a, in a sense, Jim, that's exactly what he says in 1 Corinthians. If you want to be circumcised, it's okay. But if you don't want to be circumcised, it's okay too. And this is when he said, because circumcision doesn't mean anything anymore when it comes to salvation. If you choose to be circumcised, that's okay. But if you choose not to be, that's okay too. So, I mean, he's just saying, this side of the cross, that issue is irrelevant when it comes to your relationship with the living God. It's important. Is it important to Jews? Yes. It's still an important issue. And many Jewish, you know, people will still regard circumcision as sin. There's nothing evil about that. You come to faith in Christ... Just understand that circumcision has nothing to do with your salvation. If you do it as a cultural thing, if you do it as part of your ethnic identity, fine. Circumcision, you choose to be fine, you choose not to be, it's fine. Circumcision is irrelevant. Which is just such a radical thing to say, but in light of salvation by grace through faith plus nothing else, it makes sense. It's like, another way, if you choose, if you choose to observe Passover, Okay, just as you want to sell okay. But it just make sure you understand it has absolutely nothing to do with your salvation. And see, this is one of the things that certain Messianic Jews, they're starting to say, well, I want to keep all this stuff. And it's creating a bit of an issue in 2018 among some. So, but anyway, getting a little beyond. Oh, my goodness, why didn't you stop me? It's 10 of. Um, 
I noticed John closing everything. I thought, I better look at my watch, and I got to talking. So I got to stop here. Let me pray. Lord, we've covered one of the most important passages in the whole New Testament, the Jerusalem Council. Um, It's so central to clarifying that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, Galatians 3.28. And Peter and James, as they lead the church and lead this council and make these important declarations, they make it clear. Justification is by faith, by grace through faith, plus nothing else. But we want to be sensitive, in this case, to the Jewish brothers, how they're going to understand what we're doing as Gentiles, and be willing sometimes to give those things up. It's a victory of the truth of the gospel, but it's a victory of love and of compassion and of grace. So we don't face specifically those kinds of things today, but as we've talked, we face a lot of issues where we have to be wise and thinking of how it's going to be understood by others and sometimes be willing to give up some of our freedoms in Christ. We pray now for the rest of this day as we're dispersed, as we go our separate ways, be with these men all the difficulties and stresses and strains of their lives. Give them wisdom, give them contentment, help them to represent you well. And we commit this to you in the name of your son. Amen.